Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Robert Rukov to discuss his new book, Days of Opportunity, the United States and Afghanistan Before the Soviet Invasion. Dr. Rukov looks at an understudied period of U.S.-Afghan relations ranging from approximately the 1920s through the 1970s to better understand what came before the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and how early U.S. and Soviet diplomacy in Afghanistan shaped the crisis that was to come in the 1980s and thereafter. Dr. Rob, Dr. Rukov, Rob, these were friends, uh, Thank you for joining us today on the New Books Network. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project. Oh, well, thanks for having me, first off. Uh, we go back a ways. Some of that familiarity may come up in the conversation. Uh, I got my doctorate in history from the University of Virginia at the end of 2008. But as we like to say, I'm one of several academics in the RACO family, although our interests have not really all lined up in, in, in the same direction. Maybe there's at least a sort of consistent interest in uh, political history. My earlier book project, which I worked on at the University of Virginia, was a study of US policy toward non-aligned states in the Kennedy and Johnson years. It was temporally fairly limited, but geographically and topically fairly broad. And somewhere along the way, I had the notion of in, inverting those factors of working on U.S. interactions with one non-aligned state over a much longer duration. Actually, and this is kind of fitting, there was one afternoon or evening I was going to dinner in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and it sort of hit me that Afghanistan would be a terrific uh, case study leading up to uh, the 70s. I don't I don't think I really had the, the temporal dimensions down just then, but that had a lot of appeal to me. It was actually something I kind of had in the back of my mind, even as I had two or three years left with Kennedy Johnson and the online world as it went through the various production stages. This appealed to me, of course, because of what would happen ultimately in the Cold War, the Soviet invasion, uh, U.S. covert assistance to the Mujahideen, uh, and so forth. Um, but also it just, it seemed like it was a very interesting case, uh, and it also seemed comparatively neglected. There had been so much scholarship, for example, by comparison on the United States and Indochina in the decades before the Americanization of the war there, you know, before the sort of the Kennedy and Johnson period. Um, Mark Bradley, for example, Gary Hess, uh, but there had not been that much effort to really look at the United States in Afghanistan before the late 70s, with the very important exception of scholarship on development. Nick Colother, of course, had a groundbreaking article, later chapter. I would also note the scholarship of Jennifer Van Vleck on Pan Am's partnership with Ariana. Uh, there's also a recent book by James Theron Bradford on anti-narcotics efforts. Uh, these are these are important exceptions, and I think when when you bring development into the frame, Afghanistan begins to emerge as I'm not saying this is a pun, a field of of academic opportunity. Uh, but bringing all together, kind of devising a somewhat more conventional diplomatic political narrative that that really studies the U.S. relationship with this country and how exactly a country that had been deemed relatively peripheral to the Cold War became 
effectively a central front of it in the 1980s. That task remained undone. And it's, it's a little bit peculiar in that we have more literature on the Soviets in Afghanistan for, for perhaps obvious reasons, but I had the sense there was quite a lot to explore with the U.S. role in the country, that it, that it was time to kind of to, to look at uh, some of the more conventional politics and diplomacy therein. So then when it came to time to write this book, how did you go about it? What was the source base you drew on? Um, you know, you, you've, I think you've given a really good overview, actually, the historiography around it. But in terms of primary sources, you know, what were you working with? This was an interesting and kind of meandering uh, case for me. Initially, I started with what was most familiar to me, uh, presidential libraries. But it obviously, it became very quickly apparent that the coverage of Afghanistan was quite variable within the libraries. I was most accustomed to Kennedy and Johnson era materials. And if you go to Boston or Austin, the country files within each National Security uh, Council subset of files, those are rich and those can give you a pretty good idea of policy toward many, perhaps most countries, maybe not all of them. And that's actually also, and with the Kennedy Library, that's that's especially true of Afghanistan policy, less, less true for the Johnson Library. But you go outside of that, You go, I went outside, I started to go outside of that comfort zone to go to other presidential libraries in the time span I had in mind originally, which was originally 1945 to 79. I decided to tack on another few decades, just, I guess, for novelty's sake. Um, and you realize that the presidential libraries will be of uh, uneven utility. Afghanistan records at the Truman Library are few and far between, although what, there, there are some very interesting records there. So this led me inevitably to College Park to get to really dive into the deep end of the ocean uh, and to get deeply into diplomatic records there. But also because Americans are relative newcomers to Afghanistan, it was really important to see what other countries thought of the Cold War there, thought about Afghan politics, thought about American diplomacy there. So trips to Kew, to Paris, to Berlin, and with the help of a Czech research assistant, Prague, would uh, complement the story, would, would give me much greater depth. I did not go to Moscow. Thankfully, a lot of research has been done on Soviet policy within Afghanistan. And people, of course, wanted to understand 1979 and people affiliated with the Cold War International History Project, also with the National Security Archive, have uh, probably gotten as far as reliable to go in terms of records leading up to that. Uh, so the Soviet records are, better than they might be. And I, I was assisted at key points uh, by a great colleague, Sergei Radchenko, who generously shared some records with me. Uh, private collections were helpful as well. Uh, on occasion, I should throw out a special uh, credit to the American Heritage Center, a really one-of-a-kind archive in Laramie, Wyoming, that's four stories tall and shaped like a teepee and has lots of geological records because Afghanistan enjoyed a lot of attention from American geologists in the early period uh, th that I cover. Um, that's one way to talk about how the project evolved. Um, I would not recommend doing what I did to anyone. I, I started in the middle and sort of built outward. It would have been better to approach it on a sort of beginning to end basis, but here we are. I also realized somewhere midway through that I needed to deal with the Second World War and I needed to deal with the interwar. Uh, that added a couple of chapters and perhaps complicated my dialogue with publishers a bit, but it was necessary. And I think it was it was important, I think, to the book coming together as a whole, rather than imposing a strict Cold War timeline, because as I'll say, I think the Second World War is really vital to this story. I don't think one can just start the clock 
1945 and have a good explanation of what's going on in Afghanistan with the U.S. presence there. I think one needs to start a bit earlier, and the early chapters uh, should inform what follows even as their pre-Cold War. And I think you make a good case for that. So let, let's dive into it. Book starts early 20th century. Walk us through what the first chapter is about. The first chapter hopefully establishes both American distance from Afghanistan, but also persistent, inventive, and ultimately successful Afghan efforts to involve the United States in newly independent Afghanistan. I'm not a specialist in, in Afghan foreign policy, in Afghan history. I'm very gratefully dependent uh, on, on specialists in that field. Uh, but it, it, it struck me as important to get that story across, to, to demonstrate the extent of, of Afghan involvement, the, demonstrate the extent of Afghan agency, and why Afghans might have looked to the United States, especially as a third country par excellence. They're pinned in the wake of their declaration of independence after the Great War, but still between a Russian empire, this, this, this time it's the Soviet Union, but they're still fairly suspicious of it, and British India, with which they've just waged uh, an, a third war after the, the first and second Anglo-Afghan wars of uh, the 19th century. And they're looking for partners in the development that will not place exorbitant demands upon them. These can't be either of the neighboring empires. The United States, by virtue of its distance, its uh, demonstrated industrial prowess, its affluence, looks like it's probably the best around. It's not the sole target, of Afghan diplomacy, um, arguably the protagonist in the first chapter, although he doesn't survive the chapter, uh, is Mohammed Wali Khan, an intrepid Afghan diplomat who traveled much of the world in, in an effort to, to broaden his country's diplomatic outreach. Uh, so that would pay dividends over the long run, but they're, they're confronting a brick wall of US indifference and also frankly US prioritization. Americans are looking covetously at much of the post-World War One or world, sorry, post-World One world. Uh, but inevitably, it's not gonna rank that highly as a priority to them. They have other concerns, especially just to the West um, in what would be Iraq later in, in, uh, in Persia at the time. So they're, they're not gonna rank Afghanistan especially highly because the British are still indicating that this is a special sphere of interest um, and there are also American diplomats who have their own peccadilloes and predilections. If there's an antagonist in the chapter, it's Wallace Murray, a, state, a longtime uh, State Department official, who is intent at stonewalling Afghan entreaties uh, for, for, diplomat, for broader diplomatic relations. The Afghans had obtained recognition of a kind when the Afghan delegation uh, visited the White the the White House in the summer of 1921, but that was as far as it went. That constituted recognition, but they really wanted a, a legation. They wanted U.S. diplomats on the scene in Kabul. And Murray and also his predecessors had decided that that wasn't worth the expense and it might ruffle feathers in London. There was an interesting and within the book somewhat truncated episode that almost unsettled this policy because the Afghans successfully enticed a couple of American entrepreneurs into an oil exploration mission uh, into Afghanistan in 1936. The, uh, the mission unfolded in 1937-38. The problem was, and this is not the only time in the book that this happens, they were dealing with an American firm that was basically out of its depth that uh, decided 
after unsuccessfully searching around for oil, not in the north where they could identify oil reserves, but in the south where there didn't seem to be that much uh, to pull the plug. Um, and also, although the details are truncated and I hope to uh, bring them out later in a, in a separate publication, the people involved in this enterprise were themselves a bit erratic. I said, one of the key themes of the book is really the importance of local representation of local personnel that happens with businessmen, that also happens especially with, with diplomats who emerge as the book's principal protagonists much of the time. So that, that action left Afghans seemingly with still frustrated, still stymied uh, by American distance and indifference on the eve of the Second World War. But of course, for in this case, as in so many others, the Second World War is, is a turning point. It's, it's fundamentally transformational. And we've teased it, we've talked about it, and and the World War II dimension was one I hadn't thought about previously, you know, with as much as I know about Afghanistan in this period. So how does the war shift U.S. presence and interest in Afghanistan? The American failure to commit to Afghanistan in the interwar years had left a void uh, for Germany and also for Italy. And uh, both Berlin and Rome pursued this with greater avidity over the course of the 1930s into the early years of the Second World War with, I think, mixed receptions on the part of the Afghan elite. Um, the Afghan prime minister, uh, who is uh, the senior most of what we might call the royal uncles, the uncles to the king, who was at this point still very young, uh, was himself very suspicious. This is Mohammed Hashim Khan. He was very suspicious of Nazi Germany, but Germany seemed to be the country that was most willing to support Afghan development. One somewhat understated thesis of the book is we witness a kind of developmental competition within Afghanistan in this period that at least anticipates this, the sort of contest that would happen in uh, the global south during the Cold War. At least the Germans and the Italians seem to be playing that game and the British wind up playing a kind of catch up, realizing the nature of the contest that's unfolding. However, the war ultimately even as German and Italian influence seems to grow in Afghanistan, Japanese too, to a lesser degree, the war ultimately creates a confluence of interests between Great Britain and its Soviet adversary. The two of them can agree after, after Operation Barbarossa commences in the summer of 1941 that the uh, German and Italian presence in Afghanistan is unacceptable. They, of course, reached that same conclusion about a more significant uh, German presence in neighboring Iran, and they ultimately invaded and partitioned the country. So what happens in Afghanistan following that is uh, kind of a natural and understated sequel to it. The Afghans taking note of what's just happened to their West understand that they face some kind of military risk and they face an Anglo-Soviet ultimatum that all Germans and Italians who don't carry diplomatic papers should be ejected from the country. Uh, Hashim convenes an extraordinary tribal council, Aloya Jirga, to ratify the decision, but also affirm Afghan neutrality. So this has created an immense void uh, within Afghanistan, just as Americans can finally be convinced of the relevance of this country. Wallace Murray was still in power uh, within the relevant division of the State Department, the Near East Division, but even he could understand, as Franklin Roosevelt led the United States toward greater involvement in the European conflagration, that Afghanistan might have some relevance, especially as a line of supply into the Soviet Union. Obviously, it wouldn't be that that 
um, there would be uh, some transit through the through Iran, but they had to cover all the potential bases. And also, I think Murray was intrigued by the possibility that Afghanistan could offer a kind of a window into Soviet Central Asia, that it was the one place where one could engage in intelligence gathering on what exactly was unfolding in a region that was otherwise for Americans, the far side of the moon. So he was willing to yield, but intriguingly, and kind of most significantly for the Afghans, their policy of, of cultivating contacts among Americans, which numerous very amiable, very friendly Afghan diplomats had undertaken in prior years finally bore fruit because the first US minister, that was his rank sent to Kabul, was a really intriguing diplomat named Cornelius Engert. Engert had visited Kabul in the early 1920s as a guest of then King Amanullah. And he was regarded as the State Department's in-house expert on the country. And he was a profound enthusiast for Afghanistan. He was very sympathetic to it. He would be a tireless lobbyist for Afghan necessities during the Second World War, because as a neutral country, landlocked without an industrial base, Afghanistan was bound to suffer uh, considerable inflation and scarcity as the war raged. Um, Engert's chief problem among many was the fact that Afghanistan was running out of vehicular transportation, that the trucks were vanishing from Afghan roads and basically the internal commerce within the country was severely impeded. It, his estimate was that the country didn't need that many trucks. Uh, it needed, in the grand scheme of things, it needed perhaps 500, the number he established. Uh, but because of scarcities throughout the world, because of because trucks were obviously uh, precious uh, it, 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 amid the war, Basically, the country was being starved of internal commerce. Somehow, he I actually haven't been able to pin down the documents uh, to establish how this was won within the labyrinth of the U.S. bureaucracy, but he was able to win the argument and get Afghanistan the 400-some trucks that it needed, uh, which would enable some degree of internal commerce. Um, so he was waging a kind of tireless struggle uh, for Afghan import necessities uh, despite the fact that Afghanistan was neutral, was regarded with suspicion by the other allies, the British uh, were at times sympathetic, at times not. The Soviets were, I think, more suspicious uh, of the Afghans, but Engert was able to win that argument over time. And speaking again to really the importance of local diplomacy in this story, this is in, in this book, it's, it's often a case of diplomats in Kabul making arguments and rolling the boulder uphill getting ultimately some degree of assent from their superiors in capitals. This was this was a critical early case of that, but Engert made a number of promises along the way that would have implications in the post-war era because the Germans and the Italians, ultimately the Japanese would have to vacate Afghanistan and who was going to replace them in the country. But in theory, American specialists, American engineers, the British attempted, but Afghans preferred to have the assistance of a distant power, not the British, who they distrusted much of the time. And it was thus Americans who were going to be posed to exploit this new uh, vacancy because the Germans and the Italians and, and the Japanese had been driven out and the British couldn't fill that void. And neither, at least for a little while, uh, could the Soviets. Afghans had, by 1945, an expectation of considerable U.S. assistance in the post-war era and had, a, had indeed been sold on that premise. Okay. Um, so then this invites the United States into Afghanistan, gives them sort of a base of it. And the early Cold War is, it depends on who you ask, but it, it's going to kick off shortly at some point here. 
how does the early Cold War affect U.S.-Afghan relations and, and what starts to draw the United States in a little bit more closely? For a little bit, there still seems to be this kind of multipolarity in Kabul. I think for Americans, Cold War realities in Afghanistan became apparent sometime around 1947-48. And so one of the interesting traits of the immediate post-war is Anglo-American friction, some of which is that the British simply think Americans have rash ideas about what can be accomplished there. They're going to try to do too much too quickly. There's British paternalism involved in this, and, and Americans see themselves as a sort of emancipatory force in Afghanistan. There, any number of Americans there seem to view the British with a fair amount of suspicion, but also though the British have engaged in their own endeavors in that part of the world and may have a more practical, more informed sense of what can and can't be ventured there, given uh, administrative difficulties, given the limits of transportation in the area. Uh, so it takes a little bit for the Soviet Union to emerge as a competing force, although you can find by, by late 45, even at the moment of victory in Kabul, evidence of Soviet suspicion or unease at a growing U.S. presence in the country. The Afghans were intent on cultivating U.S. assistance into the post-war, but the, the eruption of the Cold War by 47 and 48 gave them cause for caution, but also gave them an opportunity to, to kind of come back to the, the titular theme of the book. They could and, and would attempt to play these sides against each other. And even as you'd have specific Afghans, uh, for example, Abdul Majid Zabuli, who had been associated with a pro-German faction in Kabul uh, before the Second World War, you, you'd find him appealing to Americans, but then also later going to the Soviets and saying, well, our arm is being twisted to join the imperialist bloc. Can you do something to help us? For Afghans would, would attempt to navigate between the two of them. They did also, though, get a sense by the turn of the 1950s that there would be great risks in relying on the United States, that, it could, that they could draw uh, a disproportionate Soviet response. But they would also, at that same time, try to pitch themselves to the United States as, as worthy a recipient of assistance as Greece, as Turkey, uh, as a number of, of familiar, uh, as, we, as we think of it, kind of early Cold War aid recipients. But Americans looked at that situation, looked at Afghanistan, and they said, that doesn't actually line up. Afghanistan was not subject to subversion. It was not subject to significant Soviet pressure. Stalin did not exhibit much interest in the country. And from all we can tell, the Soviets didn't see it as a major arena in the glo in the growing global competition. They did worry about the U.S. presence there. They did express displeasure about it, but the CIA, looking closely, found no real evidence that they were attempting to subvert the country. As the Cold War deepened, however, as it, as it grew on other fronts, Americans looked to the Middle East. They looked to uh, South Asia as well, and they wondered how Afghanistan would fit in this broader picture. After the Korean War, Truman worried that Iran would be the next country to, uh, to face Soviet pressure. Obviously, it had faced Soviet pressure in the immediate wake of the Second World War. And there would be kind of, there would be growing US efforts uh, to ensure the stability of the Afghan government, even as Americans at this point understood that their earlier that early mistakes, something I haven't yet spoken to, had perhaps compromised their position in Afghanistan uh, to a degree, and also that the Soviet Union was watching their activity in Afghanistan more closely. 
Um, let me backtrack a little bit because I haven't mentioned Morrison Knudsen yet, and it plays such a central, such a cardinal role in the whole book. Americans had ejected the Axis from Afghanistan during the Second World War, and one of the chief projects to feel the consequence of this was an irrigation project in the South, um, what would ultimately become the Helmand Valley Project. And the State Department looked to find American engineers to work on that project, but engineers in wartime were an even scarcer resource than trucks. Uh, ultimately, this would only take wing in the post-war. And the State Department, much as its 1920s uh, predecessors had, had done, was looking for a private actor to do what it couldn't do. They, they, were, they were looking to promote American business and they were looking to take a diplomatic problem off their hands. And there was this politically well-connected firm, Morrison Knudsen, which played a massive role in the Inland West. It was one of the firms to work on the Hoover Dam. Uh, closer to me later on in its life, it was one of the firms participating in the, in the BART system, Bay Area Rapid Transit. Uh, and Morrison Knudsen was very well wired within Washington. And uh, one of and one of its uh, well, it's one of its co-founders, Morrison, was very close uh, to somebody within the, the U.S. Department of Interior who was basically working working to fur to furnish him with contracts. Um, this is this it's it's like a case of of a government private uh, cooperation, uh, the promotional state at work effectively. And so they, they walked away with a contract to undertake a whole array of different projects in Afghanistan in 1946. The problem was they didn't know what they were getting themselves into. They also arranged the contract at cost plus a given percentage, and they managed to deflect Afghan demands that they guarantee the quality of their work. The Afghans lost on this very key provision uh, in the contract, and that would really come back to haunt them. And because Morrison Knudsen ran up massive cost overruns and, and got in way over its head. They were facing some problems that were out of uh, their control, notably the partition of South Asia, uh, the, the partition of British India in 1947, but they're also doing a lot of things without much consideration for cost. And most damningly, this will come up as a bit later in time, the irrigation project was on very questionable land with high saline and alkaline concentrations. And Morrison Knudsen effectively looked the other way, even though even geologists who'd visited the sites in 1945 thought that this didn't look promising, that actually you could see surface salts, that uh, the project shouldn't go forward uh, without comprehensive surveys. But Morrison Knudsen was basically de dedicated to looking the other way. The problem was though, for Washington, for the State Department, Morrison Knudsen's problems inevitably involved U.S. prestige. The two could not be partitioned. Morrison Knudsen would need to be rescued. And the Afghans had chosen it because they thought that correctly that this firm was politically wired and Washington would support it as needed, that it would enjoy the patronage of the U.S. government. The problem was, though, the more the United States did to bail out this firm that had miscalculated, that had sold its services egregiously, the more Soviet suspicion they would draw, the more they would make the Soviets think, and the Soviets obviously had a very low boiling point here, that there was something fishy afoot in Afghanistan. And all this came to a head in the early 1950s. This brings the third chapter, which was uh, pivotal to write, and which is obviously the most crucial to the book, 
I'd argue even more so than the chapter with the Soviet invasion, also has some discussion of Afghanistan's perennial conflict with Pakistan. The Afghans disliked where the border between their country and uh, uh, British India was drawn, the Durand line, uh, the partition of India and Pakistan and the uh, British departure uh, from South Asia reopened the question. I'm really kind of uh, making a long story quite short here. And so they had frequent border disputes, frequent conflicts with Pakistan that would escalate over the course of time. But suffice it to say, by the early 1950s, they weren't certain about overland transit from their principal port, Karachi, in what was now Pakistan. And there was great interest in developing, here's the oil question again, a local source of petroleum. So pivotally, the United States threw its weight uh, diplomatically behind a notionally UN-backed oil exploration project in northern Afghanistan in 1951 and 1952. This would help Morrison Knudsen. It would help Afghanistan attain a degree of economic independence. The British and the French in the country thought this was a very bad idea because from the Soviet perspective, there was no meaningful distinction between the United Nations and the United States. The UN was a kabuki mask for US imperialism from the Soviet perspective. Some Afghans thought this was a bad idea too, but the project went forward for a variety of reasons. One of which was I think US local diplomacy. The US embassy was itself debilitated. It had significant changes in personnel and it couldn't uh, advocate against this as much as it might have otherwise. So in the summer, of late summer of 1952, the Soviets issued this, the sort of starkest statement uh, to Afghanistan they'd made since 1941, since they uh, had demanded the eviction of the Germans and the Italians. The Soviets informed the Afghans that no oil development could happen in northern Afghanistan unless they were involved in it. It was an egregious breach of Afghan sovereignty, and for my purposes, it signaled that Afghanistan had been drawn into the Cold War, despite the fact that it, it had evaded involvement in the Cold War earlier. It, it hadn't been a front line of the Cold War, like Iran, like, like Greece, uh, like Germany or like Korea at that point in time. But from that point onward, the contest would rage and would lead to terrible uh, outcomes in the very end. Very good. Can we pause really quick? I just got a text from my wife and I want to run downstairs. So 52, 53 really marked the entrance of, the, of, the, of, of Afghanistan into the Cold War. What does that entrance, I guess, what does that what form does that take? What kind of competition are we looking at in this period? What's really interesting to me, which I, I think actually we haven't really uncovered in comparative histories of the Cold War in the third world in, in, in the political sense, is how Afghanistan was a relatively early field of competition between the blocs in terms of development programs. It wouldn't receive more aid uh, than some of the larger countries like India or Egypt or Indonesia, but it seems to have been in this early to mid fifties timeframe, a proving ground of sorts, a place, uh, especially for the Soviets, but also for the West to dabble. I mean, actually for that matter, the Morrison-Knudsen project in its heyday was the largest uh, notionally US project in the immediate area. The United States wasn't funding development projects in British India by comparison. So in the, what I, and basically in Eisenhower's first term, give or take some months, you have the two blocks racing 
to deal with Afghanistan in a Cold War context. The Soviets, especially after Stalin died, Stalin was more of a stick person than a carrot person, you might say, uh, had, had basically worked to intimidate the Afghans, but his successors, including in that brief interlude, Georgi Malenkov, but then also obviously Nikita Khrushchev, uh, would work to make Afghanistan the proving ground of their own good neighbor policy. They would work to demonstrate to the Afghans that they could be a friendly and supportive neighbor despite obvious differences in ideology and social system and, and so forth. And the Afghans, especially under Mohammed Daoud Khan, who's really the most pivotal Afghan leader in the time frame I'm looking at here, uh, would once again court competing bids from different world powers. Daoud was not the only one to do this. Arguably, his predecessors had as well, at times involving Cold War arguments. But Daoud did it more boldly, if not recklessly, and the competition accelerated over the course of his leadership, uh, even as he put Afghanistan on a collision course with neighboring Pakistan, even as he complicated his own efforts to develop Afghanistan along modernist lines. Daoud faced, I would contend, a contradiction between his nationalist goals and his development goals, and did not always think about how these two interrelated, but at least early on, he could thread that needle. In spring of 1955, after the Pakistani authorities had engaged in a constitutional arrangement called One Unit to basically consolidate Western Pakistan, this was an effort to counterbalance East Pakistan, the future Bangladesh. Daoud seems to have, it's, it's hard to say definitively, precipitated a riot that ransacked uh, the Pakistani embassy in Kabul, and this led to a several month long uh, closure of the border. This is the most serious border crisis to date. There would be an even more serious one in the Kennedy years. And the Pakistanis, perhaps with some degree of US indulgence, if not support, seem to have wanted to oust out, but they failed. The US ambassador in Kabul at that time, a remarkable character named Angus Ward. Um, I encourage you to read everyone, listeners, I encourage you to read the book to get the full Angus Ward story. He's really singular. Uh, seemed to seem to have engaged in efforts to expel Daoud from power, but Daoud's hold was by this point getting increasingly secure. He had managed to limit the influence of the preceding generation of Afghan leaders. Daoud was first cousin to the king. The preceding generation, the royal uncles, were on their way out. Uh, Hashim had left office. Daoud had replaced uh, Hashim's brother, Shah Mahmud. Um, and Daoud was, on, was, was, was able to use this episode, even as it had a kind of ambiguous outcome, to secure his hold on power in Kabul. And the Eisenhower administration concluded by the end of 1955 into 1956 that overthrowing Daoud was not an option. I was, throughout the pandemic and afterward, checking my inbound mail for declassified records from the Eisenhower Library, looking for like the last and least redacted draft of NSC meetings. This is something that frustrates me a bit because I either got lost in the mail, which is not impossible, it just simply hasn't happened yet, which is more likely. The Eisenhower administration was talking about overthrowing Daoud. The redactions, the surrounding discussion suggest that very strongly. But 
it most likely concluded that this wasn't possible after considering Iran as a parallel case. The Afghan army simply didn't have that degree of political independence and, and Daoud had diminished the authority, the, the influence of, of his uncles, which might have offered a wedge against him. So Eisenhower decided we're going to have to compete for Afghanistan on the same terms as the Soviets. We're going to have to offer a meaningful aid program. Americans understood in a manner fairly unique within the global South that they were on the disadvantage in, in Afghanistan. The Soviets were in a position to outbid them and worse, a US effort to outbid the Soviets could draw a prohibitive response, could draw some form of Soviet intervention. Americans have to stay in the game, even as they have the sense that their own efforts might seem inadequate, might be overshadowed uh, by the Soviets. They also had to stay in the game despite the fact that aid uh, to Afghanistan might antagonize both Pakistan and Iran to some degree, with uh, Afghanistan had, of course, antagonized Pakistan to a considerable amount. It also had an incessant dispute over the allocation of the waters of the Helmand River with Iran. And so this, this created a problem, a set of problems that could only really be managed that resisted outright resolution. And this all flowed from the Eisenhower administration's grand strategy of enlisting both Iran and Pakistan into a grand anti-Soviet alliance. They hadn't thought about Afghanistan that much as they did so. But then having created the Northern tier, having created this belt of allied states in theory to, to set up a tripwire surrounding the Soviet Union, they had to figure out how to deal with the problem of Afghanistan. They couldn't consign it to the Soviet bloc, but they also couldn't win it over entirely. And they had to manage this problem and would try at it uh, for the remainder of their administration. And their successors would, would approach the problem on similar terms as well. So, you know, it's interesting, uh, you, this Afghan-Pakistan uh, sort of management that has to go on, it starts to blow up and in the early 60s, you know, you have six chapters entitled The Crisis Years. What's the crisis and what's the effect specifically is, you know, for Afghanistan and then for U.S. foreign policy there? Probably the Balancing Act became unmanageable. And also, I think, as one could say about states, people in, in Washington and in Moscow, eventually miscalculations occurred. Uh, arguably, in, in the South Asian case, they occurred on both sides of the Durand line. Mohammed Ayub Khan, the dictator in Pakistan who uh, displaced his predecessors in 1958, decided to, be, to effectively uh, shut down Afghan diplomatic facilities in the borderlands region. This was on the heels of considerable conflict uh, in the, in the Pashtun borderlands, Ayub was himself Pashtun. This did not foster in him any affinity for Daoud, for the, the Pashtun uh, leadership within Afghanistan. Rather, he actually seems to have despised the Afghan royal family especially. And he seems to have wanted to force a decision on the new Kennedy administration. He seems to have wanted to force Kennedy to make a choice uh, one way or another, uh, and he, he tended toward confrontation. This is where the discussion gets especially legalistic. Ayub had only closed diplomatic facilities within Pakistan. He hadn't closed the border. He didn't do, closing the border would have violated the diplomatic agreement that his predecessors had reached with, with Afghanistan during an interesting detente phase in the late 50s. Um, the Afghans could have simply reopened transit facilities close to the border. Basically, uh, 
travel agencies, the tra transit agencies to dispense visas, to admit goods into the country. But they refused to do so because they refused to accommodate Ayub in this, in this manner. They refused to be, they, they refused to, to let Ayub set the terms of their commerce. So effectively, goods could no longer enter Afghanistan. It was a very strange standoff because among other things, it denied entrance into Afghanistan uh, goods that the United States had, had intended to ship there. American development assistance was stranded on the wrong side of the border. The Afghans had avidly sought this aid, but now we're barring it entry. And the Kennedy administration found this especially baffling. But let's take the lens back a bit. This is the early 1960s, not, shall we say, a, an era without conflict elsewhere in the world. The United States had already, President Eisenhower in his final year had already uh, ordered a U-2 spy flight um, to survey the Soviet missile program, that uh, spy plane famously piloted by Captain Francis Gary Powers, violated Afghan airspace before it violated Soviet airspace and was shot down in May of 1960. The Afghans seem to have been a bit embarrassed by this, but, were, but didn't raise the issue that much with the Eisenhower administration. They did complain about the presence. Of the, they did use this, however, to, to attack Ayub and, and claim that he was going to bring the Pashtun borderlands into the Cold War. Uh, the Berlin crisis was raging at, at the time when Ayub commenced uh, the chain events leading to the border closure uh, in the summer of 1961. And there appeared to be this risk of Afghanistan becoming a military battleground in the Cold War if Afghan-Pakistani friction led to outright violence. A some sort of Pakistani-Afghan conflict could easily draw the Soviets in, posing as the champion of Afghan sovereignty. And Khrushchev liked to pretend at least that he was willing to do that. Uh, the crisis ran a very long time. The Kennedy administration was deeply baffled by it. Kennedy was atypically interested in Afghanistan, I would contend, and could be sympathetic to it, but he didn't understand at times why the Afghans were insisting that Americans ship the aid through neighboring Iran. At the, uh, it would cost roughly three times as much to use a route that basically had not yet really been developed for that purpose. And the crisis ran into 1963. It overlapped with the Himalayan War between China and India, which gave the Kennedy administration further cause to take South Asia as, as a principal arena of the Cold War. It ran past the Cuban Missile Crisis. And intriguingly, this is, and this again kind of goes to my theme of uh, the importance of diplomats. The Kennedy administration seems to have discerned an opportunity to resolve it by early 1963. The new US ambassador in Kabul, a really interesting a diplomat named John Milton Steves, very much an ardent cold warrior, had engaged in dialogue with uh, the last of the royal uncles. And he'd identified the existence of an anti-Daoud faction uh, within the Afghan elite. And the possibility that the Afghan king, Mohammad Zahir Shah, might actually be inclined to seek his cousin's dismissal from the office of prime minister. The uh, king Zahir was notionally the head of state, but a very reticent and careful individual, seemingly overshadowed by his headstrong, very deliberate uh, first cousin, Daoud. But in theory, he could seek Daoud's dismissal. Americans had toyed with that possibility earlier in the 50s, but it seemed more likely that this could happen now at, at the turn of 1963. 
And they were able to, I don't think they passed the message along, but they were able to act in a way that, that improved that possibility, basically. And ironically, this involved actually giving Dode what he wanted, uh, assenting at least for a little bit to ship aid via the less economical Iranian route. They acted to improve the possibility of uh, the outcome they desired. And ironically, it involved doing what Dode himself had been asking for. Dode himself, though, was in poor health, as was uh, his brother and collaborator, the foreign minister, Mohammed, Mohammed Naim Khan. And they seemed to have accepted the fact that they had basically backed themselves into a corner with, with this crisis, which, had, which at this point was starting to approach its, its two-year anniversary. But with their ouster, uh, Zahir seems to have thought that it was time to pluralize the Afghan system a little bit. Without overselling it, King Zahir seems to have thought that uh, creating a broader basis for governance in the country, establishing a, a parliamentary system, uh, moving Afghanistan a little bit in the direction of being uh, perhaps something akin to the United Kingdom uh, was suitable to, to perhaps insulate the royal family from uh, being ousted from power entirely. Which leads us into this next period of, of, of reform through the mid-1960s. Uh, and how, how, how does Afghanistan fare in that period? It's really interesting. The Afghan constitutional experiment took wing in 1963, 64 into 65, culminating in elections in that final year, uh, which would seat a parliament that would itself be very fractious, be very unruly. But it's an unusual time for a democratic experiment. It, uh, there, there was not a lot of, there were not a lot of constitutional projects taking wing at that point in time uh, in Afghanistan's immediate region. People could note all kinds of problems with it. Voter registration was difficult. Voter participation outside of Kabul appeared to be very sluggish. But still, there's, a, there's something kind of exceptional about it. This was when, the, recognizably, the PDPA, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, the future uh, Marxist ruling party, officially took form. It had existed. Uh, there, there, there have been study groups of... Uh, within the Afghan left earlier, there had been a brief thaw in the early 1950s before Daoud, uh, before the door was slammed on that. So it's an interesting period of political possibility without overselling it, because I don't want to claim that there's this easy counterfactual outcome that led to a, a, a democratic Afghanistan and an avoidance of all the violence that, that would follow. It's a very, it's still a very interesting period with, with liberalization of press, with, with a, an unprecedented degree of political activity, but also US disinterest comparatively. Kennedy was, I would contend, sympathetic, but his final aid bill was savaged by Congress over the spring and summer and autumn of 1963. It was still unpassed when he was assassinated in Dallas. His successor, Lyndon Johnson, took no real interest in Afghanistan. Kennedy, for whatever reason, really had. So had Eisenhower, but but uh, it's, it's downhill in terms of White House attention from there. And U.S. ambassadors in Kabul, who are generally sympathetic toward the project and who do continue to ascribe importance to Afghanistan, perhaps for their own uh, personal interests, and perhaps you know, because being sent to that post they're intended they're, they're inclined to ascribe importance to it but i think all you know but but also sort of taking i think taking fair stock of of what was at stake and, and the possibility that if the project failed afghanistan could once again emerge on a collision course with its neighbors 
Um, regrettably, instead, uh, a clash emerged between Afghan leadership and the Johnson administration. What's what's kind of interesting is even as you have a sequence of relatively soft-spoken Afghan prime ministers who are not pursuing conflict with Iran and Pakistan very much. There's a symbolic level of agitation about the Pashtun borderlands. The, the politics of the river, of the Helmand River, remain difficult. But the Afghan kingdom is maintaining a, a lower profile in this era, except it does speak out within the non-aligned movement about Belgian and an American intervention in the Congo at the end of 1964. So I, bizarrely, there's a brief spat between Washington and Kabul about, of all things, the Congo. Most like, I mean, the Afghans were, were keeping pace with sentiment within the non within the non-aligned movement, and they weren't being especially vehement. You don't find Afghan leaders talking like a Sukarno at this point in time. But that's that's enough to ruffle feathers in Washington, and most faithfully. The Afghan Prime Minister Mohammad Hashim Maiwandwal, who had been ambassador in Washington, who had met with Kennedy about five times. Kennedy had, had invited him to the White House as a friendly send-off when Maiwandwal was summoned back to Kabul for higher appointment. Maiwandwal visited the United States in the spring of 67 to solicit aid. US aid was, was falling off um, and, and would continuously during the Johnson years. And he was pressed by reporters in a press conference at the National Press Club for his views on Vietnam. And eventually he got annoyed and said he thought that the bombing of North Vietnam should stop. This is again, this is this falls far short of anything resembling invective of the kind of things being said about the United States elsewhere, but Lyndon Johnson took umbrage. Johnson wrote on a memo, I don't want to, I don't want to give Afghanistan any further assistance, I'm paraphrasing unless you talk to me about it. He made all further aid appropriations to Afghanistan, no matter how small, subject to his specific approval. And he seems to have nursed a grudge toward Afghanistan for the remainder of his presidency. He imposed one further barrier on top of all of the others for further assistance to Afghanistan. Uh, and this would be a problem for the remainder of his presidency. And to me, there is, I think, the at least the irony that Johnson could not apprehend that there was concurrent with his own great society, a significant, if perhaps imperfect, you know, perhaps limited program of reform underway in Afghanistan that had potentially dramatic implications that, that, that could ultimately transform the country into a more pluralized political system, take it away from the, uh, from the autocracy it had been at the, in the earlier parts of the 20th century. He didn't perceive it. He didn't extend its sympathy. He didn't fundamentally take the interest in, in Afghanistan that his predecessor had. And that's for me, I mean, th th that chapter especially ends on a really bittersweet note because at, from, from this point onward, the constitutional experiment was increasingly troubled and Afghanistan's uh, future as a result of that would be clouded as well. Now, which brings us to the fall of the monarchy, which if you read any other sort of uh, Cold War facing histories of Afghanistan, this, you know, this is the footnote moment where suddenly Afghanistan gets to enter the picture a little bit, right? What happens with the monarchy? Zahir seems to have engaged, been engaged in a double game with the constitutional experiment. He understood that it was necessary to have a parliament. He understood it was necessary to have prime ministers who were not members of the royal family by and large. But he didn't want anyone to emerge as a potential opponent. Uh, the historian of Afghanistan, Amin Saikal, 
identifies Prime Minister Mai Wandual, whom I previously mentioned, as potentially the Prime Minister most able to challenge Zahir. Zahir just seems to have wanted to appoint a bunch of functionaries uh, to that office, better that than to have somebody emerging as kind of a populist alternative. The problem was he was also appointing people who couldn't command much support in the parliament. He never approved a law legitimizing political parties in Afghanistan. So the running line was that Afghanistan's legislature had as many parties as it had legislators. It, it, legislative sessions could simply be chaos incarnate. And this became a big problem as, as the country faced a very serious ecological crisis at the turn of the 1970s, a very serious drought. It ran across a couple of years and led to an ensuing famine. At the same time, Afghanistan was being prodded by Western aid donors to enact self-help. Basically efforts to improve agricultural productivity, but these tended to be very capital intensive and they intended to, they, they, they generally also involved the rapid assumption of advanced agricultural techniques. The, the manuals one encounters describe a kind of extensive training process that the average Afghan farmer really would have uh, questioned, really would have wondered why this was being imposed. And all of this was driven not by any assessment of where Afghanistan's agricultural productivity, where its economy stood, but simply by aid fatigue, by, by, by fatigue on the part of donors, uh, by the fact that aid budgets kept getting hacked down from year to year. Um, but then the drought struck and imposed a different problem on Afghanistan. Notably, the US embassy headed by a really interesting, fascinating diplomat, the only quote unquote political appointment uh, I encountered my timeline, although I think he seems to, he seems to have thrived in office uh, as as much as uh, as any of his sort of formally trained predecessors, improvised an emergency response. But the self help imperative endured. U.S. personnel, some of them acting in official capacity, some of them consultants hired by the Afghan government, looked for ways to pair disaster relief with further reform. So the the first response to the drought occurred basically through something called the Food for Work program, an effort to dispense relief grain in exchange for labor on agricultural projects. One of the great treats of putting this book together was interviewing a quartet of American Peace Corps volunteers who'd played a role in administering Food for Work and who had a lot of unhappy stories about how it actually worked out in practice. There wasn't enough grain, often there weren't enough tools, and most fundamentally, hunger and development imperatives didn't go hand in hand. Uh, where the hunger was greatest wasn't necessarily where there were the most uh, promising projects to undertake. The administration of these projects was haphazard. One of my interviewees told me with horror, basically 50 years after the fact, that his Afghan employees, the, 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 the people who were notionally uh, laboring on these projects had sometimes complained to him that they'd been given rocks rather than wheat, that they, he'd opened up a sack and found that was true, that, bas that basically the governor in question was, 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 holding, was withholding grain and, and, and falsifying payments. The, so the, the entire project got off to a very bad start. And this appears to have been the last straw uh, for many in the Afghan government who had bemoaned the inefficacy of 
of the system after Dode's ouster uh, in 1963, at, at the end of at the end of the of, of the around the end of the border crisis. The second wave of Afghan governmental responses to the famine was much more effective, and that simply entailed having the army distribute relief grain personally. It was highly centralized. And entering 73, the country appeared to have emerged from the crisis. The, the last of the prime ministers, a gentleman named Mohammed Musa Shafiq, who is, I think, to, to some sort of the most celebrated, it depends, I mean, I've, I've spoken uh, with, uh, with, with Afghans and some really quite like him, uh, I think others are more critical, but he's, he was a young, dynamic figure, also an alum of Henry Kissinger's seminar at one earlier point in time. Uh, so there's a, a superficial optimism that one could find at this point in time by the summer of 73, but Mohammed Daoud Khan had decided that it was time for him to return to power. Interestingly, he had contacted the U.S. Embassy the previous year and asked how Washington would respond if he returned to power. And the U.S. ambassador previously mentioned uh, Robert Newman had been directed to say that the United States couldn't comment on an internal Afghan matter, but would accept an Afghan government that remained neutral, that remained independent, and continued to cooperate with Washington on its principal issue of concern in the country, which was not the drought. It was rather suppressing opium cultivation, anti-narcotics policy. Dode, in effect, whether Washington understood this or not, got a conditional green light from the United States. I have no doubt, although I haven't found documents to this effect, that he made a similar consultation of, the, of Soviet officials in Kabul and got a conditional green light from them, too. But while his cousin, the king, was in Italy, uh, he ousted uh, Zahir, uh, Shafiq was imprisoned, and Daoud seemingly banished the Afghan monarchy from existence and declared a republic. Although if it's a republic that is headed by the first cousin of the king, how republican is it? So then your next chapter comes back to this question of engagement. And I think it's it's funny to sort of note that like, despite the fact that both the superpowers are engaged here, it, it's not as though Afghanistan in 1973-74 is suddenly a Cold War hot-button issue, you know, and I, I think other historians, I mean, this is where I have read on the issue, pointed out that the Soviet Union didn't necessarily have a master plan for advancement in Afghanistan, kind of far from it. So what does, what what draws both back in, and what does that engagement look like? It's, it's an interesting question. Uh, and one thing worth noting is that by the mid to late 60s, there had been a kind of informal detente between the United States and the Soviets in Kabul. They, they were chatting a little bit by the late 50s. By the 60s, there's almost a kind of camaraderie. I mean, I think diplomats will socialize generally. It's part of their job. Uh, but also, psychologically, they will reach out in unfamiliar places and look to cultivate uh, friendships just just as part of, of uh, human activity, and thus those those dialogues continued at least a little bit into the seventies, and they at least served to illustrate that neither country was was really playing to win in Afghanistan at this point in time. There was at the very least a basic minimal communication between the blocs, at least on the part of their localized representatives about their stakes in Afghanistan and. They each communicated a basic satisfaction with the with the status quo. The the communist bloc might have been unnerved by Daoud's ouster. I think they they had perceived some advantages with him, 
and his replacement by a succession of, of figures whom they saw as being somewhat on the political right. My Wondol had been ambassador in Washington, for example. But you don't see that in any kind of diplomatic response. They seem to have been, they seem to have remained relatively unalarmed by developments in Afghanistan. And thus, the coup of 1973 did not occur at an especially fraught moment in the Cold War. Detente had been attained uh, by Nixon and Brezhnev. There was actually remarkably an exchange of notes between US and Soviet governments about Daoud's return to power in which they both affirmed that they were content with the status quo, that they would not uh, seek an advantage. They both understood that this had basically happened through Daoud's own initiative and that neither uh, necessarily needed to be implicated uh, in what would follow. The problem was Daoud had come to power backed by officers in the Afghan military who were nationalistic, but also who had been trained in the Soviet Union. That latter fact need not lead us into the realm of conspiracy. There were suspicions of mass Soviet indoctrination programs, but this has not been especially documented. People who've looked at the Soviet side of this argue that rather, especially Artemy Kalinovsky, argued that actually if the Soviets had really tried this, it could have blown up in their faces. Uh, rather, I think Soviet efforts at military modernization fostered a kind of general impatience among young Afghans at the slow pace of reform, at the slow pace of development. And it wasn't that the Soviets enjoyed cells within the Afghan military. They could at times know if something was afoot because they would have, they would have some contacts but a fractious, unstable coalition would emerge in Kabul between Daoud, who at the end of the day represented an older generation who was fundamentally suspicious of the Soviets, who would use them from time to time, but I think he grew more suspicious of, of Moscow by the end of his life, and Marxists within the military. And this would be the governing coalition. Over time, Daoud effectively purged elements that were uh, further to the left over the course of his short republic. In fall of 73, however, as, as one kind of demonstration of power, uh, as, as perhaps an effort to quash a potential opponent, they had arrested and executed, uh, although I think they, 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 feigned, they feigned it as a suicide, former Prime Minister Mai Wan Uh Daoud was, by the account of his confidants, uh, shocked by this and, and very upset and would at least thereafter pursue a slow whittling down of Marxist influence within his government. The question is where, where American opinion was at the time. Daoud's return was ominous to both of the allied neighbors, to Iran and Pakistan. And Nixon and then uh, Ford, and of course Kissinger throughout, were intent on reassuring the Shah, uh, on reassuring uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto in Islamabad that Afghanistan would not act in ways hostile to their interests. It seems to me, there is some contention on this point, that the US response was not confrontational, but rather an effort to renew aid, to engage in high-level diplomacy. Kissinger visited Kabul twice as Secretary of State, having paid the country very little attention beforehand. That there, basically, there was there's a protracted effort to win over Afghanistan. And it helped that Daoud was a familiar figure. Nobody thought Daoud was a communist. They were, there was concern about people within his government, but Americans continued to find him approachable. Uh, the, the ambassador in Kabul at the time, a gentleman named Ted Elliott, who I had the, the privilege of interviewing, uh, likened Daoud to Sitting Bull. I mean, there's 
someone more culturally minded than me can, can really delve into that. But he saw Daoud as this proud, stoic, ultimately approachable figure. And he, he engaged in a kind of a process of, of allaying any suspicions Daoud had over the course of his tenure in Kabul at that point in time. The key, so they're, they're key new factors at this time. Superficially, you can see the mid 70s as a renewal of the aid competition of the 50s, but there were more players at the table and I think that produced a more fluid, less predictable environment. The Soviets appear to have been very worried about Chinese influence in Afghanistan. I think to a, to a very exaggerated degree, but they would ultimately hunt Maoists in Kabul after the coup of 78 and after their intervention. But the key new actor was the Shah of Iran. Iran was flush with oil revenues in the 70s and was making wild promises of, of financing development in Afghanistan at this point in time. And this too, I think, was of some concern to the Soviet bloc. But I wouldn't overstate the case. I wouldn't overstate it to the point where the Soviets plotted deliberately Daoud's downfall in 1978. Suffice it to say there were concerns afoot uh, as Ford and Kissinger exited office in early 1977, that there, there was at least a renewed possibility of competition in Afghanistan. Although if you told anyone at that moment in time that Daoud, Bhutto, and the Shah, seemingly three leaders at the height of their political power uh, would be gone, by the end of the decade, it would seem like a very strange and very unlikely prediction. And then in this last chapter, it, we arrive at sort of the, I think the point where other listeners might be most familiar with this history, which is yeah. the coup, the coming invasion, and what becomes the war. Walk us through that and walk us through U.S. responses in this period. Yeah. It won't shock you by this point in time that there wasn't that much attention to Afghanistan in the early months of the Carter administration. It, I mean, what actually the the first year of Carter seems to have marked the apogee of the narcotics issue within the bilateral uh, relationship. It was important throughout the seventies, Car but Carter nearly sent uh, one of the deputies of his drug czar, uh, Peter Bourne, to serve as ambassador in Kabul before his national security advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski managed to shoot that down. Carter, of course, talked about going past the Cold War. And while we have, you know, we have scholarship that does assert uh, that Carter was at heart a Cold Warrior, I'm thinking of Nancy Mitchell, there was no great concern with Afghanistan, and I don't think any great familiarity with it on Carter's part. That's not shocking. I, you know, I, I throughout the book, I, uh, I'm at pains to say that Americans were not acting with Afghanistan first and foremost in mind, not at the highest levels. They would have to, however, acknowledge its importance after the fact and, and, and accommodate it in one or another grand design. Basically, Daoud lost his government. He uh, His confrontation with the Afghan left reached a critical stage in the spring of 1978, and in a way that nobody really expected. I am skeptical of uh, accounts that posit any kind of significant Soviet role in disaster. And Americans at that point in time also thought that the Soviets probably hadn't been that involved in it. Perhaps they got some sort of 11th hour notice. What's notable to me, and I think what's instructive, is that the U.S. response to the emergence of the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan was a wait and see period. Americans were determined not to fly off the handle. And this, of course, is a product of the, the Cold War politics after Vietnam, basically. U.S. governments faced a risk of seeming to be like Chicken Little, of, of you know, or of, of basically of, of crying wolf at, at one or another 
development and would need to be cautious for that reason. The CIA headed by Stansfield Turner had no avidity for covert action at this point in time in the discussions of 1978. Within the Carter administration, people who were more hawkish found the CIA to be uh, maddeningly cautious about undertaking any kind of action within Afghanistan, even as it was clear that this new Marxist regime under Nur Mohammed Tariki and his ambitious, bloody-minded deputy Hafizullah Amin, even as it was clear that they were steering a leftward course, they were authorizing quite a lot of repression as refugees were streaming into Pakistan. As always, the regional picture proved very determinative. The US relationship with Pakistan was fraying uh, after, especially after Bhutto's ouster, after his imprisonment uh, under uh, General Mohammad Zia-ul-Haq. And revolution in Iran created also a sense that the entire regional order was coming undone, that it, uh, the, the, the stakes in the region uh, were being called into question in, in a way that they simply hadn't been uh, since the early to mid-1950s. And amid that, greater bloodshed was occurring in Afghanistan. The, the regime was facing uh, an uprising, especially, but not only among the most religiously inclined in the country that, that hit its apogee in early 1979 with the uprising in Herat. Afghanistan against this context could actually seem like an opportunity. That's a strange word to use, but the Carter administration seems to have understood by uh, the spring of 79, that the Soviets were for once oppressing Islam before the eyes of the world. Uh, Vice President uh, Walter Mondale raised this point in what I think was a really pivotal meeting within the National Security Council, within the Special Coordinating Committee. Brzezinski, who was inclined to see Soviet malice afoot generally in the world, assented as well. And publicizing the Soviet involvement in Afghanistan was a way for the United States to, among other things, bid uh, for the alliance with for alliance with the new government in Iran to make a case that there was continued purpose in a relationship between Washington and Tehran, even as the Shah had, led, had fled the country. It was a way to allay Pakistani concerns. It was a, a, a useful rhetorical point to make at, at this point in time, even as the Soviets were themselves completely floundering as they, they found that they'd placed uh, their support behind a very repressive very ineffective Afghan government, even as they were trying uh, to rein in uh, the Afghan Marxists, but only in a, in a way that was really counterproductive. A really interesting note, really a interesting episode that happened late in, uh, in this story uh, was I think the sort of the swan song of Soviet American diplomacy in Kabul. A pair of communist bloc ambassadors, Vasily Safranchuk and Hermann Schwiezau, approached US diplomats in the summer of 1979 and attempted to explain their difficulties with the Afghan government. Most likely they were trying to tip their hand to Washington to explain that there might be a change of regime. They were trying to oust Amin, but they might also have to oust Tariki in the bargain perhaps. And the United States didn't know how to regard this. The United States wasn't sure uh, whether to take this seriously or not, um, whether this was simply an effort to legitimate a further Soviet presence in Afghanistan, because much of the US government thought that the Soviets were simply engaged in a process of tacitly expanding into Afghanistan. That was Brzezinski's outlook. The people who were less inclined to view Soviet ambitions that expansively, paradoxically worried 
that warning Moscow against further action in Afghanistan would worsen the relationship. They were themselves worried about seeming to cry wolf. In the grand scheme of things, Soviet efforts to rein in the Kabul government failed. They found themselves on a collision course with Amin. They suspected Amin of plotting with the United States, which was simply paranoid. Uh, there, uh, the United States loathed Amin because of an episode earlier in 1979 where he had arguably contributed to the death of the U.S. ambassador, the last ambassador I cover, um, through either malice or just brutal ineptitude. But the trust between the Afghanistan would ultimately be a casualty of the, uh, the absolute distrust between the, the two blocks at this point in time. They managed to jointly bluster each other toward a confrontation there of all places, arguably, arguably because they hadn't found a way to formalize the understanding they'd reached earlier. At a calmer point in the Cold War, they could agree that there was no point in contesting Afghanistan, that, they, that it was worth uh, basically playing for a tie there. They'd formalized an understanding about, for example, Austria earlier in the Cold War, but the understanding in Afghanistan remained tacit. It remained uh, something that was understood interpersonally, but which hadn't attained uh, any kind of formalized status. And as the situation in Afghanistan and the wider region worsened, they were free to ascribe the worst of intentions to each other and to kind of project their worst fears about the coming decade, about the, the 1980s against this Afghan canvas. And they would wage the Afghan Cold War in a very different way in the following decade. So you end the book, I think, with a sort of poetic observation that in this period, Afghanistan was not the graveyard of empires. That that's, that's something that's applied retroactively, and it's a really problematic assertion for a few reasons, but, you know, walk us through a little bit, I guess, your sort of concluding feelings about what happens in this period and what it means for Afghan history today. This is an interesting period. The historian of Afghanistan, Niall Green, describes it as the missing middle. Uh, there's a focus on the 19th century. There's a focus on everything after the, what I'm calling the cataclysm, the uh, coup of 1978 and all the wars that follow. This was an opportunity for Afghanistan to pursue its development amid the Cold War. And a, a point I'm at pains to stress, because we have a very martial image of Afghanistan throughout the United States, is that Afghanistan didn't defend, didn't depend on its warriors. It didn't depend on uh, people carrying rifles. It depended on its diplomats in this era. Afghan diplomacy was a success story, not nothing martial. Uh, and Afghanistan succeeded in a lot of ways. I, I find ample fault with development programs at this point in time. I mentioned the Hellman Project. I could also mention a vast and gaudy airport that the United States funded around Kandahar for what would be a non-existent tourist trade. But Afghanistan had succeeded in courting assistance, which could have been spent better. And it also succeeded in weaving a middle path through the Cold War. It may seem like it's a success story uh, for much of this time period. Americans in the early 1970s described it as a, as a success story in non-alignment. And unambiguously it was. Uh, under Daoud, under his prime ministerial successors, Afghans seem to have enjoyed benefit of the doubt between the two blocs. That by itself wouldn't solve all of their geopolitical problems. Arguably, the regional issues, Pashtunistan, also the Helmand Waters, are very difficult. 
But how Afghanistan tumbled from this relatively stable and safe orbit into becoming a Cold War battleground, and then because of all of the terrible damage, all of the societal disruption, uh, that wrought uh, a battleground into our current era. Uh, that's, a, that's a profoundly tragic story. Along the way, while I was researching this book, I would often encounter people who would just sort of throw up their hands, I think sympathetically, and just say, oh, well, you know, what an unfortunate place. But it, it wasn't for destined to be that. I don't think so. I think it, this happened because of the geopolitics of the air. It happened because of a cycle of misperception between superpowers. Afghans could, through their own efforts to game the Cold War, contribute to that. But at the end of the day, the responsibility lies with exterior powers for deciding that Afghanistan would represent a number of things to them. That it, that it would be a battleground symbolically for a while, but then it, it would actually be a proper battleground, an actual martial battleground. Phenomenal. Thank you for that. Uh, I always like to ask to conclude, you know, what are you thinking of working on next? Because everybody, you know, the moment they finish a book project immediately just wants to dive into the next big thing, right? So what are you thinking of? I have this strange practice of following my books with journal articles. Uh, I maybe need some therapy for this because <laughs> I don't get the journal articles out. Before the book, I wind up thinking of journal articles to, to kind of patch the... Um, the holes I think I've, I've, I've left. I would really like to explore the 1930s oil mission. There used to be about 4,000 words about it in the first chapter. Uh, now there's only a few hundred. Uh, I'd also like to explore the border crisis a bit. Um, the, the first one rather, maybe the, maybe the second one too. But beyond that, I think I'll continue to work at the intersection of the Cold War and decolonization. I have a few, I have a couple of nebulous project ideas in mind. Uh, one situated in Africa in the Nixon years, another perhaps sort of exploring an, an interplay of the Cold War and climate. Uh, but those are at this point sketches on a small three by five card and they'll need to be fleshed out over time. I, I hate to say it, but writing this was a, somewhat exhausting process and I'd like to pause and think about what I'm doing next before I, I jump into the deep end again. It, it is always good to remember that a book project uh, is going to be exhausting no matter what trajectory you take with it. So yeah, pay attention grad students. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rob. Oh, thanks so much, Seb. It's been a pleasure.